HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRM podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register now for PASA's 2023 conference in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, featuring more than 90 sessions on farming and food systems, as well as mixers and meetups and a trade show. Learn more at pasafarming.org slash conference. This is Gastronomica, a podcast on Heritage Radio Network. This series is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. I'm Paula Johnson, a member of the Gastronomica Editorial Collective and your host for today. Our winter issue, now available online, explores the world of water, the impacts of environmental change on food production, agricultural landscapes and communities, and the technologies and infrastructures of drinking water. Join us as we talk with some of the authors of this issue. My guest this week is Holly Browse. Holly completed a PhD in cultural anthropology and now works as a research scientist at the New Mexico Water Resources Research Institute. Today, we'll be discussing her article, The Uncertain Future of New Mexico Chile, Can a Heritage Crop Adapt to Water Scarcity? Thank you for joining us, Holly, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Paula. It's my pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. Um, And that was a big question that you asked in the title (laughs) of your article. So let's see what we can do about that. Um, I'd like to start by asking if you'd briefly tell listeners about what you do as a research scientist and a bit about the institute where you're based. Sure. So I work as a research scientist for the New Mexico Water Resources Research Institute. And that's an institute that's on the campus of New Mexico State University. It's part of the university system there. And our goal is really to address the water research needs of all of New Mexico. So we try to do projects in all parts of the state, and the projects that I am focused on are kind of more towards the south of the state and across the border. So my two main projects are, I work for the Transboundary Aquifer Assessment Program, which we work with our Mexican counterparts to discuss our uh, groundwater resources that we share at the border, that there aren't actually any rules to govern at this time. We have a lot of rules about our surface water, about the Rio Grande. 
um, who gets what and the timing of releases. And there are not any rules about the groundwater. So we're working on a program now to just exchange data with our Mexican counterparts with that project. And then the other project is about agriculture and water features here in the south of the state where things are, are getting dry. So, Wow. Wow. That's a lot of, of ground to cover, so to speak. Um, broadly, uh, what is the focus of your work and specifically how did your project on New Mexico chilies and water scarcity come about? Yeah. So the, the chili part of the, the work actually came out of my dissertation. So I did my whole dissertation on the New Mexico chili industry and it's um, stretched now across the border into Mexico. And so that was where I started with that work. I got really intrigued by the fact that chili is so important to the state of New Mexico. It's you know, really important to the cuisine, to the heritage, the culture here. And yet after NAFTA, we lost so much of the production here in the state um, and now import a lot of the chili from, from Mexico. And so one of the, I'm actually turning that into a book project now, the dissertation. So keep an eye out for the book in coming years. But Great. one of the chapters of that was um, thinking about environmental futures for Chile. And so I started into the climate and water issues, the challenges that the industry is, is facing. And so that was a part of the, that original project. And part of the reason I was recruited by the, the Water Institute to, to work for them, because I had already started this water and agriculture work. Wow. Um, can you offer just a bit more context here? Your article begins with a really wonderful sketch of the New Mexico chili harvest. Um, and I'm wondering if perhaps you could share something about the history of chili in New Mexico and, I don't know, the main varieties, the cultivars that are now so important to its economic and cultural and, as you point out, the culinary significance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it really is just a, such an integral part of the, of the culture here. A lot of people I know uh, buy, buy a second freezer just to just for their green chili that they get during harvest season. They'll process many times as a family, um, get it get it into bags and pull it out all year long. But they have their separate freezer just for that because it's so important to um, the regional cuisine here. And um, typically, the when you're thinking about chili, in the north of the state, there's a lot of land-raised chilies. And... So there are varieties that have been grown in a single location for generation upon generation. Uh, one of the most famous is Chimayo chili. And these tend to be a little bit smaller. Um, they're plants that are really, over the years, they've been selectively bred to be um, perfectly suited to the environment and the growing season and the, um, the taste, really, of that community. Mm -hmm. And so you see a lot of that in um, in the villages up north, and many of the pueblos have their own land-raised chilies as well. But down here in the south, which is where I focus my research, it's really the heart of the commercial production for New Mexico chili. And a lot of those varieties uh, were bred by NMSU plant breeders to be more uniform in pod shape and length, um, to have uniform heat, and to be more, I guess, amenable to, to the canning industry down here. And so that's what's grown a lot here. So many of the famous varieties like Big Jim, for example, um, or Sandia, these are kind of NMSU, they might say improved varieties or just 
variety is meant for commercial production down here. Wow. Thank you. Um, so the culinary and cultural significance is pretty clear. The economic significance is a little bit less so, um, at least to me right now, because of wh- what you described about the impact of NAFTA and then what um, you argue in your piece about the potential uh, impact of drought on uh, this important industry. So can you kind of talk about the dimensions of the industry a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So before NAFTA um, passed in 1994, New Mexico at that time was growing about 34,000 acres a year. Um, and that dropped significantly after NAFTA. So now consistently it's right around eight or 9,000 acres a year in the, in the state of New Mexico. And meanwhile, across the border in Chihuahua, they're growing about 90,000 acres of chili. Um, and so the, it's, it's difficult for farmers to compete with international prices, um, particularly when the cost of labor is so different from one side of the border to the next. And, and with the red chili, with the dried red chili, it's not even just across the border. It's all, all around the globe. Other places can grow red chili um, more inexpensively than you can grow it here. And so it's difficult for farmers to remain competitive, and but it is still a, an important economic crop, and not just because of the the farming or the you know the farming itself. There's also the processors. There's a lot of um, specialty products that are created out of that chili, and it also contributes to the tourism industry, particularly down in this area with with the Hatch Chili Festival and the regional fame for chili. So. The, the economy of it stretches well beyond the agri- agricultural lands. Sure. And, you know, you've suggested um, already and in your article for sure about the notion of terroir and how important that is to the local, the regional um, Chile in um, southern New Mexico and how drought may have an impact on that. Can you Can you talk a little bit about the specific terroir and, you know, kind of the, I don't know, the distinctive features that are um, conveyed uh, through Chile? Sure. Yeah. Um, like many products that are heritage products or uh, important cultural, agricultural products, when, when it comes to the, the global marketplace, it, it is, when it's really difficult to compete, one of the ways that instead of just entering that race to the bottom of trying to cut production costs to maintain, to be competitive. One of the other strategies is to highlight what makes it special when it's grown in New Mexico or what makes it special when it's grown in a certain place in France, if you're talking about terroir for grapes. Or, sure. um, and so that's one of the strategies that, that New Mexico has taken um, actually over the last couple of decades, trying to um, really brand New Mexico chili as distinct and as special because of the, the quality of the soil, the particular minerality of the soil here, um, mm-hmm. because of the uh, amount of sunlight we get here, the, how many days of sunshine, it's very different than other growing regions. Um, yeah, just the, the weather, um, yeah, the particular climate, weather, the cold nights, people say is important for the, for the chili, and, and even practices, uh, agricultural practices is something that's wrapped up in the idea of terroir as well. And so one of the things that I'm exploring with this article 
is when when it comes to drought, when it comes to changes in, in climate, and in, in this case, there's a lot to be said about climate, but in this case, in water scarcity, people have to change their practices. They have to adapt and find new ways to, to grow. And that does change terroir. It does affect the flavor. And so uh, it's, it does make a difference. Yeah. Um, that leads into this uh, next question about... Um, can you talk about the broad dimensions of water scarcity where you are? You know, for people who are living elsewhere, uh, we may read about drought, we may read about, um, you know, those changes, but we don't see it every day. We don't have to, you know, work around it or try to work with it. Um, so in your article, you state um, in New Mexico, it is uncertain if there will be sufficient water for agriculture in the future which is a big statement. And I wonder if you would, could talk about that a little. Of course. Yeah. So where I'm at in New Mexico, in, I'm based in Las Cruces, and that's about 45 minutes north of the U.S.-Mexico border, 45 minutes outside of El Paso, Texas. And the Rio Grande runs down the middle of New Mexico. And so we catch the, the end of the Rio Grande. We call it the lower Rio Grande region here. And with the changing climate, the Snowpack in Colorado, the lack of snowpack in Colorado greatly affects river flows all the way through the state of New Mexico. And so we are, we are noticing that really sharply here that we just year after year have less water in the river. And a little bit north of where I'm at, there's the Elephant Butte Dam. And it was created as a dam to prevent the, the flooding that would happen in this area because of the change, the fluctuations in the Rio Grande. It was also created to hold water for agriculture. So they have a more steady source of water for agriculture in this area. And in the last couple of years, it's been getting down to about you know, 4% capacity in you know, a couple of years in a row, up to maybe 9% or 12%. But when you visit that, that area, you see how much, you know, just by the marks on the, on the, um, the rock formations around it, you can see how much lower that dam is now, and it's just not refilling like it was. And so we're getting less surface water, and that means that farmers are having to compensate by using more groundwater. And previously, they would call this the conjunctive use of surface and groundwater. So when there was dry and wet cycles, the, during the wet cycles, the groundwater can, can recharge because it's connected to the river water. So it recharges. Um, and then dry cycles, they would use a little more groundwater and wait for the next wet cycle to, to replenish it. And we're having so many years now of, of dry cycles that, you know, like the rest of the U.S. Southwest, we're, we're in a prolonged period of drought. And so the concern is now that the, the groundwater is also not recharging as it once was. And if we keep drawing it down um, and, and don't have any way to recharge it, then we're going we're gonna to run out of water for agriculture. I mean, that's probably in the state of New Mexico. 76% of the water is used by agriculture, and that's not uncommon for the rest of the country as well. It's, it's the largest water-using sector, and so they're quite concerned about, you know, it's not, it's not imminent. You know, it's not like this year or next year that, it's gonna, that they're predicting that there won't be enough water for agriculture, but we're thinking long-term, you know, what, what about 20 years from now? What about 50 years from now, 100 years from now? What's it going to look sure. like? What I found so interesting about your article also is that you argued that strategies 
to deal with water scarcity are in themselves potentially harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and I, yeah, I don't want to overemphasize the harmfulness because I think they're so necessary as well. Mm-hmm. But they do have an effect on a heritage crop like chili that is known for a particular flavor, particular way of being grown. Um, so the examples that I used in that paper were breeding plants that are more drought tolerant, um, implementing fallowing strategies to save water, and the other one was switching to more efficient irrigation technology. Um, and so just very briefly, I'll discuss all three of sure. them, if that's okay. Sure. <laughs> yeah, so with the plant breeding, the idea is to um, breed for chili and in, in a traditional way. This, this is not genetic modification or anything like that. Just through traditional so selecting um, or you know, cross-pollinating methods, um, trying to breed for plants that are more tolerant to drought. And which is a great idea and part of, part of what we're going to have to do with a lot of our crops, um, particularly those that are grown in the West here. So, but it does have an effect on the flavor. So when you're breeding for one characteristic, a lot of times other characteristics are affected and uh, in ways that if you're not paying close attention to flavor, it can be suddenly you have a chili that's drought tolerant, but doesn't taste anything like what we've come to know here as a New Mexico chili flavor. And so, some plant breeders are more invested than others in maintaining that flavor. I've been, you know, happy to see that at NMSU, a lot of their efforts does involve um, trying to maintain the traditional flavor. So I've actually been out in the fields with them as they're walking through and searching for the varieties that they think are or the, the exemplars, the individual plants that they want to save seed from. But they'll stop before they harvest that plant and, and, and taste it and say, okay, does this have the heat, the flavor, the kind of, um, I guess, the, yeah, just the typical flavor that we're hoping for for New Mexico chili before they decide to actually save seed from that plant. And if it doesn't, they'll pass it by and choose another one. So well, that's, that's so one way. Yeah. Uh, another one is following. So if any of the listeners don't know, following is when you leave a, um, a field unplanted for a growing season or a certain period of time. It's a really ancient practice that I mean, they, it, you can find mention of it in the Bible. So there's it's a practice that's been part of agriculture for a long time. But here they're trying to implement, or I guess there's pr- proposals for implementing following, a paid following program here, so that farmers could voluntarily take a portion of their land out of production at a time. And if enough farmers can buy into that program, say, yes, I'll devote this to this following program, the state will pay me to do that, um, that that'll lessen the pressure on groundwater. And the difficult thing, about following here for the chili industry is that chili has to be rotated every, usually people say four to seven years. You don't want to plant chili in the same field until several years down the road because there can be a buildup of pathogens in the soil. It makes it really difficult to grow. And so you need a certain amount of space that you can rotate your crop around into. And there's already been a, a big reduction in space available because of um, growing permanent crops like pecans. Pecans has become a huge crop down here. Um, the most economically important agricultural crop in this area, for sure. How did, how did that happen? Because they're, they require a lot of water, don't they? They do require a lot of water. Um, and there were some original families that planted pecans and started the business here um, a long time ago, like 100 years ago. But 
So it's not a new crop, but I think it particularly with the real challenge is getting labor to do things, to harvest chili or to harvest onions, to, to do that um, field work with our you know, changes in our border policy, changes in our migration policy. It's harder to get labor. And so when farmers uh, have been fighting for a long time to try to, to stay afloat and to get the labor that they need, switching to pecans is very attractive because once that, perm- that crop is established, it doesn't require that, that same intensity of labor at all. There's, there's machines that come by to shake the trees. There are machines that sweep up the, the nuts. There's machines that uh, scoop them up and take them to the processor. So it's a huge difference in labor. And uh, I think that's one of the big reasons why we're, we're seeing it. That, that's so interesting. So it makes a huge difference in labor, but how are the pecan trees being watered? I mean, where does the water come for them that isn't available perhaps for Chile? Well, they're all using the same, the same water, okay. the same water is yeah. available. Um, they do mostly in this area flood irrigation. Some um, orchards are, are experimenting with drip irrigation or sprinkler irrigation, but it's mostly flood irrigation. And, and they do use a lot of water. So when you're talking about fallowing, um, it's, pecans can't be fallowed because they're, they're a permanent crop if you don't water them for the year they'll likely die. And so the investment that took them, it took to get them to maturity, it would be lost. And so they're, we're counting on the row crops that actually use less water to be the ones to follow and to save water. So fascinating, fascinating. We're going to have to take a short break um, and we'll be back in just a moment. Cultivate farms and food systems that nourish, heal, and empower. Register now for PASA Sustainable Agriculture's 2023 conference. Access more than 90 sessions on topics including environmental conservation, food justice, sustainable food and textile production, renewable energy, and much more. Featuring a not-to-be-missed lineup of speakers, including Indigenous environmental scientists, and author of Fresh Banana Leaves, Jessica Hernandez, the best-selling author of The Art of Fermentation, Sandra Katz, co-owners of Heritage Seed Company, True Love Seeds, Owen Taylor and Chris Bolden Newsom, and many more. PASA's conference takes place in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 8th through 11th and includes social networking events plus an expansive trade show. Register now at pasafarming.org conference. That's PASAFarming.org slash conference. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Paula Johnson talking with Holly Browse about her newest article, The Uncertain Future of New Mexico Chile Can a Heritage Crop Adapt to Water Scarcity? I wanted to um, get to your research um, because um, this is just a uh, a lot of different um, perspectives that you're uh, bringing together for your for your work as a research scientist and a cultural anthropologist. So, if you would, can you tell us how you conducted your research? You've already mentioned that you're in the field, um, which we would expect. Um, but can you talk a little bit about your research? Sure. 
I take a, an ethnographic approach to, like most cultural anthropologists, we do, we call it ethnographic research. So there's generally three main pillars of that kind of research. One of it is participant observation. So means you're, you're observing, but you're observing by being there, by actually working alongside a farmer or working, you know, going into the fields with the scientists to test their trials with them or, you know, joining a labor crew to pick chili for a day or, you know, just these kind of activities that you get yourself fully involved in. And you record all that in field notes. So you write, write up your field notes daily or, you know, as, as often as you can. And that becomes your main source of data. And then you supplement that with interviews. And so I try to interview people from um, just really broad perspectives. So I want to interview people who have worked as Chile laborers or the president of the labor union here. And I want to interview farmers. I want to interview scientists. I want to interview people who own the processors, the Chile processors, or people who are the the field men, the go-between between the processors and the farmers. Um, so you do this, the interviews and transcribe those interviews. It's another source of your data. And then the third pillar is usually document analysis. So finding the, the important sources of information that have been documented or even you know flyers that people pass out at events. Or I even count um, social media posts as kind of my document analysis because one of the main ways that institutions now try to provide information to, to the public um, is through their social media posts. So I have my little archive I've collected of those as well. So those are the sources of data, but it's uh, it's it's fun research. It's fun research to do, especially the participant observation, being out in the field, doing what people are doing and really learning um, hands-on. Sure. I'm, uh, I work in a museum, so of course one of my questions will be, what happens to your field notes and um, your documents as... Um, because of your position at the research institute, are, do they become permanently part of the archives there? They don't. So okay. um, the way that we work with the, in particular, under supervision of the institutional review board, the the data that we collect is uh, confidential. So when I'm interviewing somebody, it's not to be entered into a public record. It's we you know, we have them do an, a, an informed consent and. And it's um, it's anonymous, um, sure. So their name is not attached. So when you actually do the transcription, you take off their name, you take off identifying features, and you use the data more in um, in conglomeration with the other pieces of data that you found. And so we don't create an archive with those. Um, and the field notes as well are you know they're mostly for for my use as I look for patterns in what I'm finding. Um, I actually use a, a software that I like to use for coding the data. And so I pull out patterns in the data and and then pull out examples, like you know, little pieces of the story that I want to tell, but will mm-hmm. often use a pseudonym instead of the name. So mm-hmm. sure, sure. So with your ethnographic um interviews and research, were were farmers and processors and distributors uh, forthcoming in speaking with you about water scarcity? Yeah, I think that I was incredibly lucky down here that um, I don't think anybody who I asked to do an interview refused to do one. Um, people were very kind. They want to talk about the future of, of New Mexico Chile here and so and the future of agriculture here. So when I think when you're approaching people um, with a certain amount of humility that, that you know you're asking them to teach you about what what are they struggling with, what are they what are they up against? Um, people are willing to 
to talk about those things. I would say within that, within that, water scarcity is a difficult topic. And I've talked to other researchers who have had a lot of pushback um, trying to address farmers about water. Like I said, I've, I haven't had that experience. Um, it's sensitive. You have to approach it in a really sensitive way, um, in a really understanding, open way. But I think when you do that, people want their, they want to be heard. You know, these are things that they're struggling with every day. So they want to be heard. They want to be understood. They want people to think, to know that they're not just trying to waste water. They're not trying to, uh, not that they don't care about the environment, you know, but they, they, but they want to give you a full perspective of what it's like to be a farmer, what they're, what the other, the other things that they're struggling with and how they would like to be using water, but why they're limited. So to me, for me, it's been very enjoyable conversations to have, even though it is about a sensitive topic. Sure. What were some of the challenges of uh, the research, you know, beyond the ethnography or including the ethnography? And did you, did anything surprise you uh, during the course of, of this research? I guess the challenge is because we, we have to rely on people's generosity, really, to, to share their stories and to share their time. Um, it's not like I can just set something up in a lab and run the exams that I want to, want to run. I, I I'm really kind of at the mercy of people opening doors to me and I can do as much as I can to, to get my foot in the door. Um, and I moved down here to do the, the year of replaced ethnographic research in 2018 and that till 2019. But I've been coming down to the field site to her various visits and to participate in events and to meet people since 2014. So I really took a long term um, approach to the project and had kind of an established set of people who I already knew who are willing to open some other doors for me before I moved down here to do the research. So that helped a lot. Um, I, did, I did some of the research on the Mexican side of the border as well. So, you know, those first trips down there are, are challenging because I don't know anybody. I don't have any contacts. And so just doing the work of, of talking to people, asking if they know anybody, you know, asking people to sit down and talk to me about something. It's, it's, it's hard work, but like I said, I was really lucky that people were very generous with their time with me. And then as far as surprises go, one of the things that I didn't think would end up being a part of the research was I have a whole chapter about people's changing relationship to microbes. And <laughs> I wasn't expecting it. Yeah. And so, um, you know, even big commercial farms that we kind of tend to put Farming, you know, organic farming, or you know, conventional farming—all these opposite ends of the spectrum. But it's really not true in 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 practice. Um, a lot of the big commercial farms that have no interest in being certified organic are also now really concerned about their soil microbiology, and they're bringing in chicken manure because they know that they don't have to fumigate if they have good enough soil health um, to prevent some of the diseases that are typical in Chile, for example. So. Um, and interestingly, I, I was really fascinated by how, how many times people talked about their own bodies and their understanding of their, the microbiology in their own bodies in relationship to the understanding of microbiology in the soil. And so that was one of the biggest surprises that came out. And it was really fun to write about because I, I wasn't expecting it. <laughs> right, right. Wow. Well, can you tell us then um, how things have changed since you wrote your article um, and whether sort of um, 
well, how how is how have things changed since you wrote your article? Yeah, I think I don't think that all that much really has changed. So one of the threats to water in this area right now um, is our lawsuit with Texas. So which is still very much ongoing. Um, the way that the Rio Grande Compact was set up, Texas's water gets released from Elephant Butte. And so it travels all the way through the lower Rio Grande, all throughout these agricultural areas before it gets to the Texas border. And so Texas is saying that because we are using more and more groundwater, it pulls down the river. And so they're actually pulls down the levels of the river. So they're not getting their full allotment that was released to them at Elephant Butte. And that lawsuit is still ongoing. There was some a couple of times we thought we were going to reach a settlement over the last couple of months. And even in the spring, there's been some details that just came out about a settlement that um, may or may not actually happen, but it's still very much ongoing. Um, we haven't had a you know great wet year to replace the groundwater. So, uh, and the, and the farmers are still working to, to maintain their crop. Um, it was particularly difficult to get labor during the pandemic. So um, it added an additional challenge to, for those, for those who are raising chili, but yeah. The, the, what did they, do? what did they do? Yeah. Um, in terms of labor. Yeah. There, some of them have signed up for the H2A program, um, but really that's, it's good for big producers. Um, you know, quite big producers. And so many of the farmers here that feel like they, can, they can't afford to do that. They can't afford to meet the stipulations for housing, for transportation. They just don't have the resources for that. And so some, there's some experimental mechanization for green chili. There's, there's full-on mechanization for red chili. There's, you can harvest your whole crop already um, with, with machines, with these large tractor machines that go through and, and mechanize. Um, there's, it's in the process for green chili. Um, but yeah, there's, there are some instances where people couldn't get their chili harvest and harvested. And so it turns red and it, if they harvest it red, it's worth a lot less than it would have been for green, um, or they just can't harvest. So, and they have to rely that year on their other crops that they planted to keep their farming business afloat because uh, most chili farmers are not just chili farmers. They plant, um, a variety of crops that they can rotate through their different fields. So they'll also, they'll say that they're row croppers instead of chili farmers. So they will plant cotton and corn and onions, uh, sometimes rotate alfalfa in. So there's, they have to rely mostly on um, the money they make on some of the other crops. Wow. So it's a matter of being resilient and uh, innovative and creative and to be able to, um, really pivot, I guess, is the word we always use uh, with um, both the kinds of crops, but also then, I mean, we've really sketched a complex political landscape um, and whose water is it? How did it get this way? How can these policies be changed? Um, so yeah, thank you for illuminating the complexities of of New Mexico Chile. Um, as we wrap up, I would like to ask what you're working on now and what's your next project. Yeah, so the I'm not quite done with this Chile project. I'm still, like I said, trying to turn it into a book. So hopefully, in the next um, couple of years, I'll have the book project out. But 
one of the main projects that I'm working on now is really trying to address the, the following programs. Um, I'm working on a, a grant from the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research, also from the Thornburg Foundation, which is a New Mexico foundation, um, also using some state appropriated money here uh, to the Institute, and then a lot of very generous in-kind uh, contributions as well for this big project that's looking at, well, I have the, the social science co component of it, of course, but then there's a team that has uh, systems modelers, so people who actually do the modeling work, and there's soil scientists, there's hydrologists, there's GIS professionals, um, agricultural economics. So it's this very interdisciplinary team that's trying to approach uh, this, uh, this question holistically. And so I'm out there kind of at the first part of this pro uh, project talking to farmers about doing these, these in-depth interviews and asking them um, about their business, about how it's changed, about how they're using water now, about the limitations of the, of the water that they're using. Um, some of them are bringing up issues of uh, water getting too minerally, um, salty, they'll say. Um, or, you know, we'll talk about switching to drip or using other types of water. And then we'll talk to them about why or why not they would participate in the following program. And if they think it's a good idea for the valley, what, what some of their, um, I guess their reservations are about it. And that's all been very informative. And so I'll feed that information to the rest of the team, to the modelers, so they kind of know what's important to include in the model, what's important, what they can leave out. And yeah, the idea is to see with some of these proposals that have already been put out, to be able to model it and say, will this really save water for this area? Will it damage the agricultural economy? Um, or is there a way to use following in, in very strategic ways in which we can maintain a healthy agricultural economy here, maintain the chili industry, um, and but still be able to preserve our water resources long-term? Wow, thank you, thank you. And finally, I just have to ask a culinary question because we can't very well be talking about New Mexico chilies without talking about their use as food. So uh, what are your favorite dishes or your favorite ways to use local chilies? And was there anyone who introduced you to particular recipes in New Mexico? Yeah, I, I guess I got a lot, of, a lot of recipes from a lot of places. I love to go to restaurants and just kind of pick out what's, what's in things. Um, but maybe my favorite thing to order if I'm out is um, just huevos rancheros. So very simply, the tortilla, the double egg over medium is how I like it. And then I order Christmas. And so here that means both red chili and green chili. So you have one side that's red, red chili sauce, beautiful, smoky, delicious red chili sauce. And then the more kind of choppy, chunky green chili sauce on the other side. It's just a perfect breakfast for me. I yeah, just love that meal. Um, my favorite one to make, probably the easiest one to make is um, green chili stew. And I actually, I grew up on a farm in Oregon and I bring home uh, 50 pounds of frozen meat when I, when I travel because we grow our own, we have our own um, beef and lamb and pork and everything like that. And my brother's hunt, so I have access to beautiful quality elk. And so elk is actually my favorite thing to make it with. Brown your elk, put in your onions, put in your garlic, um, get that you know browned up, put in the potatoes and your chili. And then depending on what you have access to, kind of seasonally. Um, 
zucchini is beautiful in it. Uh, sweet corn is is beautiful as an addition. Um, yeah, and then just have with broth and just cooks on down. It's so with that spiciness in the winter. Oh, it's a beautiful, beautiful meal. <laughs> oh, you have painted a what marvelous picture for all of us, and we're all now ravenous. Yeah, <laughs> but. Thank you so much, Holly, for joining us. And listeners can read the full piece in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. I urge you all to do so. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. And join us next week for another episode from our special issue on water. James Mallon will discuss his work on soda water and how this drink came to be a Jewish icon. And subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes in 2023. Thank you for listening. The Gastronomica podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.